This program is a production of Restoring the Core, an initiative designed to assist those wishing to go deeper into classic Christianity, with resources available in a connected age, online at RestoringTheCore.com. This is The Lens of Glory, Class Session 4. Welcome to The Lens of Glory, a program dedicated to demonstrating that the Bible can be read through the lens of the glory of God. I'm Walter Hampel. This and all of the programs in this series of podcasts were recorded during Sunday School at Troy Christian Chapel in Troy, Michigan, the United States of America. The purpose of this class is to demonstrate the linkage between Jesus Christ and the glory of God as found in the Bible. Since the Bible shows us that it is written about and centers on Christ, the Bible also can be read with a viewpoint or lens where we see that the glory of God is a dominating theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. A Christ-saturated Bible must also be a Bible which is filled with the glory of God. The following is the audio for this class session. Sovereign Lord, I thank you that you allowed us to be here today to study the things of your word, to study the wonderful linkage that the scripture shows us between Christ and the glory of God. I pray that you will be with our understanding, be with our understanding as we discuss these things, our insights, the questions we have, so we can understand not only what you're telling us from your word, but our desire to get a grasp of this. And in Jesus' good name we do pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, let me go back very briefly to what we ended up with last time. What I was doing was establishing that scripture, that's not what I wanted, just a moment. Let's try this. That's three, just a moment. I jumped this, I didn't mean to. I'll start from the current slide. Duh. Okay. Um, what we did last time is that we're showing from Scripture a linkage between Christ and the glory of God as found in Scripture. One of the verses we went through and kind of ended with is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 37 through 41. And it's a reference to how the people of Israel aren't or weren't listening to Jesus at the time, and how Isaiah prophesied that this would happen. And you have John going on to write, quote, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So, question we pose, when did Isaiah see the glory of Jesus? And we took a look at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. We have a vision that Isaiah has in the temple of God seated on a throne. Which is an interesting thing because for, for one who worked in a temple at the time of Isaiah, it's the Jewish temple, the proper temple to use a British term, there were no seats. You know the old saying, oh man may work from sun to sun but a woman's work is never done? Well, the same was true for Levitical priests. Their work was never done. There was no place to sit down. It indicated, you're not done yet, like on an ongoing basis. So you have God seated on a throne, interesting piece of furniture for a temple, but I showed a comparison between Isaiah 6.1 and the English version of what's called the Septuagint. Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew and parts of Aramaic into the Greek of the time because Greek was becoming the up-and-coming language of the up-and-coming culture. Alexander the Great brought Greek culture all over that part of the world, and people are starting to speak Greek. It's, it's kind of like, for example, if people are coming from different ethnic backgrounds and they come here to America, they might not know the Hungarian or the Polish or the German or the Russian or French or whatever language your ancestors may have brought from another language, it tends to fall off tends to fall off, and English tends to become the standard. Greek was becoming the standard at that time, and they're looking, 
to have a scripture that is understandable to people who are Greek reading and Greek speaking. The majority of the quotes of the Old Testament as found in the New Testament come from the Septuagint. So I want to show a comparison because John, in writing the Gospel, may very well have been thinking of the rendering we see here as his basis for his comments that he makes about Isaiah seeing the glory of Jesus. If you take a look at the NIV 1984, that's now the new official designation for it on Bible Gateway, if you buy a NIV now, it's uh, NIV, or it's NIV 2011. Um, and there are some differences in terms of the reading. Now, it will be interesting to see how it plays out in the future in our church with Pastor Dan reading from a 1970s version, most of us having the 1980s version, and newbies having a 2011 version. Anyway, I digress. But Isaiah 6.1, it says in the NIV, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw... I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Compare that with what's in the Septuagint. It says, it came to pass in the year in which King Ozias, and again, it's another way of giving the name Uzziah. I mean, I used the example last week. If you, in English, refer to somebody as William, Bill, or Billy, most people aren't confused that you're actually talking about the same person. So don't let the format of this kind of throw you. It says, And it came to pass in the year that King Osius died, that I saw the Lord sitting on a high and exalted throne, and the house was full of his glory. See the comparison here. The train of his robe filled the temple. Temple and house, pretty synonymous concepts. But in this case, the train of his robe is rendered in the Septuagint, and the house was full of his glory. <coughs> Interesting, because you also find a few verses later where you have the angels in heaven praising God, and they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So we're talking about a household of glory to the whole earth being full of his glory. There's great symmetry there. But again, I want to point out that when John is speaking about seeing Jesus' glory, this is what he's looking at. This is where Isaiah is seeing Jesus on a throne, high and lifted up. And we have that from the best source we can, inspired scripture. Now let me back out of that and go back to where I needed to be. And from the beginning, and let's continue on. So, asking, is there a biblical linkage between Christ and the glory of God? We've already been looking at that, and we're going to see a few more linkages in today's, um, today's program. I do a podcast, and I keep saying program. This is not a pro In today's lesson, today's session, <laughs> since the Bible is Christ-oriented, Christ-centered, and Christ-filled, if there is a linkage between Christ and the glory of God, we should expect to find, oh, bless you, <laughs> I, I can now work for another hour, <laughs> to your detriment. Um, if there's a linkage between Christ and the glory of God, we should expect to find that where Christ is, the glory of God is there too. I don't know, for example, if you've ever known, let's say, a married couple, where if you see the husband, the wife is there, or the wife is there, the husband's there, because they're always in each other's company, always present. Same thing is true with Christ and the glory of God. If you're going to see one, the other is present there as well. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I want us to read the first four verses or so. Hebrews chapter 1. And just for context sake, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now, again, listen for the attributes of what you've got here with the Son. Whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. And it kind of lines up with what John says about Jesus being the Word, and the Word by which the universe was created. Continuing with Hebrews, the sun is the radiance of God's glory 
and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Staggering, staggering comments about the nature of who Christ is. Heir of all things, the one to whom the universe is made, the one who holds the universe together. So, for example, if you run across comments that are, uh, the term that's used is deistic, and everyone might not be familiar with that. There was a rather relatively brief historical point, at least in American history, if not English history, where deism was popular. And the idea behind deism is that you have God who created the universe. I mean, at this point, people weren't, like, pardon the term, but silly enough to believe that the universe came into existence on its own. They acknowledged that God made the universe. However, in order to account for things such as what seems to be uh, evil that happens that you can't explain, I mean, think of what happened in Newtown, Connecticut earlier this month, that kind of thing. In order to try to explain something like that, it seemed easier to think of God as a watchmaker who has created the universe as this very intricately designed watch, wound it up, set it in motion, and for whatever reason, walks away from it. So you have a creator, but you don't have a sustainer. And according to the book of Hebrews, Jesus is not only creator, he's sustainer as well. So you have all these things going on, all these wonderful attributes. But in the midst of what we read, we read, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. There is this wonderful linkage between who Jesus is and literally the radiance, or some other uh, translations render it as the brightness of God's glory. It's a unity that's there. It's an identity. And we're going to see a few more examples of how that works out. And again, think of the cases in the Old Testament where you have the radiance or the shining of the glory of God. Jesus is there in a very special way. Well, let's continue on. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're actually having the full text here of 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. So I'm not going to open up the paper text. We can just read it here from the screen. Concerning unbelievers... Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians 4 and says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, small g, because that's not referring to the God of, who made all things, the maker of heaven and earth, but Satan. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see, and again, note the metaphor here, blinded seeing or incapable of seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, hopefully you'll understand if, let's say you're witnessing to someone or telling them about your testimony or giving them some information about Christ, if they're an unbeliever, the blindness has to be lifted by the Lord. You can present the most wonderful arguments that you could put into a college textbook on logic when it comes to showing how from scripture, from uh, natural revelation, and just even the world around us, how God has to be the maker of all things, that the, the real God who is is the God of the Bible. You can make all of these great arguments, and they would hold up. But if you're blind, it's like showing somebody who's an actual physical blind person and, and like holding up scripture to the going, see this? They don't. They can't. And that's what Paul is saying, but what are they blinded to? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The, good, the light of the good news of the glory of Christ is something they're blinded to. So again, a linkage with, the glory, with God's glory and Christ. But also, here's Paul's statement that he's going to make about believers. Concerning believers... He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Let's stop right here. This isn't an exact 
quote from the Old Testament. But what do you think Paul's referring to here? Yeah, Genesis. As God speaks into the darkness, this first command, let there be light. So he speaks into the void, and there's light. And Paul is likening our spiritual condition that within us, we are like that void that God must speak the light into. And he says, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine into our hearts to give us, and what does he give us? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you want to see the glory of God, if you want to be transformed, might I suggest that the first thing you don't do is like gear yourself up, kind of like New Year's, everyone's making resolutions, like, I'm going to get the willpower this year, I'm going to finally drop those 50 pounds. Well, I usually have to more than that. But, aside of that, to do that, it isn't just ginning up this thing on our own willpower and making it work. It is Christ who's going to give us that inspiration to do it. But what, what inspires us is not saying, okay, here's a bunch of laws in here, you know, go out and do them. Our inspiration is by looking at the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's where we start. That's where actions flow from. And again, that's what changes us. We're also going to see how this actually had an interesting fulfillment at the time of the Transfiguration and, and a prayer that happened centuries before that. So again, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Unbelievers are blinded. Believers have been allowed to see. And they see not more insight into the law or more whatever. They're seeing the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yes, Julie? So this would really be a good prayer to pray for oh, yeah. unbelievers. Absolutely. I think it's a wonderful prayer that uh, just as God shined his light into us in our darkness, that he would shine his light so that those of us who have, let's see, relatives, friends, co-workers, whoever, would come to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I think it's a wonderful prayer. Yes, Rose? I'm reminded of Moses when he came off the mountain and the light was so great on his face that he had seen God, I mean, he had talked with God and there was light rather than some other manifestation. It was the light that he had to put a veil over his face because they couldn't look on it. Exactly the case. That's true. <clears throat> because, I mean, let's face it, if you see somebody who's luminescent like that, it might kind of scare you. <laughs> because you know that something special has happened. So let's continue on. I want to talk about the one known as the Lamb in the book of Revelation. I don't think I need to make an extensive case for how Jesus is the Lamb that is spoken of. There are repeated references. And I have Revelation 5.12 as one if you want to take a look at that. However, where I'm going with this in this quote is Revelation 21, verses 22 through 23, where John, the revelator, writes, I did not see a temple in the city, this time of the New Jerusalem, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it. Look what's happening here. For the glory of God gives it light. So again, let me stop in, in mid-quote here. It's hard for us to imagine as beings who, for the totality of our lives, unless you've had some transcendent experience somewhere else that I'm not aware of, uh, you've lived in a situation of day and night here on the earth. The sun comes up, you'll see the moon. These have been the main sources of light, which we have in this world. I mean, granted, we have electrical light that does a good job at night, but in terms of the natural world, the two lights are the sun and the moon. However, John writes, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God 
gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. So if the glory of God is the light and the Lamb is its lamp, the connection is the glory of God, that illumination, is coming from the Lamb himself. That's Christ. There's also transfigured glory, which is where I thought Rose may have been going with this in a moment. I, I thank you for your comment, Rose. It was extremely right on target. From Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. <coughs> there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So, for a moment, or for a very brief period of time, Jesus takes three of his top apostles and gives them a view of what his glory is like. And it is a staggering view. Now, do you remember who's accompanying them on this high mountain? There, there are two other people who are up there. Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Now, with Moses, there's a really interesting thing here. This was pointed out to me a few years ago, and I just thought it was, it was just so delightful. God's hand of mercy <coughs> and perhaps sense of humor. You might recall that we have the case where, after Moses is the one who helps lead the people out of Israel, he has this really interesting prayer to the Lord. He doesn't say... Put on a magic show for me, or do fireworks, or you know, do something spectacular, raise the dead, you know, make the Egyptians stand on their heads. You know, I mean, nothing odd like that. His prayer is to the Lord, show me your glory. And God's response to him is, if you're looking at me basically face on, it's going to destroy you. I'll let you see me as I'm leaving so to speak. And again, God has to specially manifest that. So in a sense, God is leaving Moses and he's in essence seeing the backside of God departing from him. And that's the best Moses can handle. You also have Moses who years later is really cheesed off with his fellow Israelites. God tells him, speak to the rock that's in front of you and, and water will come out. And well, years before, God told Moses, take your staff, strike the rock, and water would come out. This time he says, speak to it. Moses is upset. And he, says, he takes a staff and says, I have to bring water out for all of you. I mean, you can imagine, he's just really, just really angry. Bang, hitting the rock. Water comes out, and God says, because you did not treat me as holy in front of the people of Israel for what you did, you will not go into the promised land. You'll be able to go up into a mountain, I think it's Mount Nebo, and see the land in perspective, but you're not going in. So you've got these two things going on here. Now, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses is there. Now, we're not quite sure which mountain was the Mount of Transfiguration. I've seen three candidates. One of them being Mount Sinai, because Moses and Elijah are referred to because both of them had encounters with God at Mount Sinai. Um, in Elijah's time, the mountain's called Horeb, but it's still the same place. That seems unlikely because that's really off the beaten path. I mean, if you want to go on a religious pilgrimage, so to speak, around here, you're not going to like maybe take a drive out to California and then drive right back. It, it's a little out of the way. There's also Mount Hermon, which is in the north part of Israel, but the same kind of uh, problems are there. It's a very high mountain, but it's out of the way. Mount Tabor has traditionally been seen as the site of where the transfiguration happens. It's not all that far from Nazareth. So you've got two things going on here in terms of God's mercy. You have Moses standing probably on Mount Tabor with Christ and Elijah. He got in. He's in. Took 1,400 years, but he's in. Oh, that's nice. And, remember, 
He wants to see the glory of God. He's looking at it in the face of Christ. Both these things are resolved on the Mount of Transfiguration. An answer to prayer and, in a sense, redemption for Moses. So, again, something I want to point out as well as showing that here's Christ who's showing this light. He's shining like the sun and showing his glory to his, um, to his disciples. Do you know why Elijah was there and not David or some other? There's, a, there's been speculation. And again, it's, I'm going to call it informed speculation. The idea is that Moses and Elijah may very well have been symbolic of the Old Testament itself. Moses of the law, Elijah of the prophets. Because Elijah is considered something of the, the best known prophet. I mean, despite the fact you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the like. But if you're thinking of someone who stands out as a prophet, it's, um, it's, it's going to be Elijah. Case in point with, I do that a lot, sorry. Uh, example is you have John the Baptist, Whose garb or whose type of style of dress is he copying? Isaiah's? Zephaniah? Elijah. And it says he comes in the power and spirit of Elijah. So the idea that I've heard, and again, this I can't give you a firm answer on that, but it's seen that perhaps Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah because they would be the embodiments of what we would consider the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. You don't think that Moses saw the glory of the Lord before that? He well, he saw the glory in terms of Jesus being, uh, or excuse me, of, of God moving away from him visibly in, in that passage in Exodus. No, he, I'm talking about that. I'm talking about. You mean later after that? No, I'm talking about after he passed away. Quite possibly. Quite you possibly. Know, I mean, well, but here's where I'm going with this, Roman. He may very well have. However, it's one thing to speculate that he may have, it's another one to see the scriptural evidence that for sure he did. It's for sure answered here. So that's, uh, no, that's a good point. He may very well have, but at least it's one thing to speculate, it's another thing to have the hard data that's right there. We have a passage from Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. And John writes of his vision, it says, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, and white as snow, and his eyes were, were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Let me just stop there for a moment. Very descriptive of God and also keeping in mind when you're reading a book such as Revelation, there are strong link backs to Old Testament prophets. And what you see here is extremely similar to what Ezekiel mentions as he's seeing the glory of God when God is seated on a throne by the, I think it's the Kabar River. In Ezekiel chapter 1, this rainbow that just arcs over the, over the throne of God and the description of what God looks like is strikingly similar to what you find here in Revelation. But let me continue on. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And in Roman, uh, in Roman thought, holding seven stars is something that Caesar did. So it's a way of taking over Caesar's power. It'd be like somebody nowadays wanting to make a point that he was an important world ruler. And if he said, I am the one who rides Air Force One, I am the one who sits in the Oval Office, it would give you, uh, it would give you the sense that somebody's trying to link himself to being the President of the United States. Give me a moment. Anthony, is there something you, I know there's something we discussed, is there something I need to give you at the moment we're good? Okay, good, sorry. There's a time-sensitive issue, I just, good, we're good. Anyway. Uh, so the seven stars, out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brightness. So you have, once again, this linkage with the one who's standing among, or walking on the seven golden lampstands, and that's Christ. His face shining like the sun. 
echoing back to the transfiguration. This linkage again between Jesus and the glory of God, and in this case, very visible manifestation of the glory of God. Do you think that one of the reasons uh, John the, uh, God chose John the Apostle to write the book, if you believe John the Apostle wrote it, it could have been John the Elder, I don't know, wrote, uh, chose John the Apostle to write the book of Revelation because he saw the transfiguration? And, you know, it's quite possible. It, it, no, that's a good thought because um, John would have, uh, depending on when people put the book of Revelation, I'm going to put it roughly 95 AD, give or take, so, I mean, think about it. If it is John the Apostle, and, and again, you might say, if, there's actually some speculation it may have been another John who wrote the book of Revelation. The style of Greek is very different in Revelation than it is in the Gospel of John. It's very simple, but good Greek in the Gospel of John. In the book of Revelation, it's almost kind of like Yoda talking. So it, it, the, the structure is just not, it's just not there. It's kind of broken Greek. But in any case, if it is John the Apostle, it would have been maybe 60 years or so before, and seeing your best friend in glory on perhaps Mount Tabor, and then seeing him in this vision in a very similar way. It would have been a strong linkage. It's like, yeah, he would have recognized exactly who he was seeing in this vision. That's, that's an interesting point. Uh, any other questions or comments before we go on? Yes, Susan. I was just wondering, is it a jump to wonder if the way that Jesus looked after his resurrection was like the way he looked at the top of that mountain? Um, well, it depends what point of time after his resurrection. Because, for example, when he's speaking with his uh, <coughs> disciples, they don't recognize him. But I suspect that if Jesus were glowing like the description that we find in Revelation or in the Matthew passage, I mean, all the transfiguration passages, somebody who's internally lit up like that would kind of stand out. Um, so I, how do I put it? I suspect, and this is speculation on my part, that for Christ to look like a, they can call it, normal human being after his resurrection, was the thing that took effort. He, in, uh, to try to veil himself would actually have taken the effort. He would naturally have just been shining. But that's hopefully informed speculation on my part, but I, I mean, I can't say that dogmatically. So in terms of the way he looks now, I, I really think that what John describes, yeah, that's exactly what you're going to see. So I, I, you know, I, I try not to bash this too hard, but when you have precious moments, figurines of Jesus and the like, I don't think that when you die and you open up your eyes in glory, that Jesus is going to look like one of those figurines. I, I suspect he's going to look a little bit more like what you see in Revelation 1. Just some thought, but hopefully that answers your question. Yes, thank you. Okay, Anthony. And just to point out, like the Son of Man, for their scripture reading, comes from Daniel as well. Okay. Well, didn't Jesus say, I haven't gone to my Father yet? That's true, so he did. So he was walking on the earth, so he hadn't received... Maybe that glory uh, yet, you know, he was going to go to his father. Yeah, that could very well be. I mean, Jesus does manifest that transfigured glory even before he dies and is resurrected. So there's something about his being both son of God and son of man, both divine and human, that that glory is still somehow there but failed. Anthony? Yeah, but there, there's a good point. She makes an excellent point because of Jesus' high priestly prayer. He says, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. So when Jesus empties himself, he puts that aside. You know, it humbles himself to become like us, and he will return to that glorified state. That's, no, that's a good point. Because uh, as Anthony said, you find that in John 17, Jesus is praying about asking God to glorify him with the glory he had before with him. Uh, you also have what's called the canonic passages in the letter to the Philippians where it talks about how Jesus empties himself and then is, is in essence filled back up again. So, yeah, the timing of that, we know it happens. I, I, I can't be dogmatic when, I mean, for lack of a better term, the light literally goes on in Jesus, but um, it, obviously it does. I, I suspect Revelation 1 is kind of what it looks like now. Uh, I, Roman, I see you yeah, here. yeah. He, he did say that to Mary. Don't, uh, don't touch me after he had done my father. But don't forget, like when he appeared to the apostles, he told Thomas to touch his wounds. So sometime between those two events, 
And the term that's there uh, that talks about when Jesus is encountering the women uh, on the morning of his resurrection, it's, in essence, don't cling to me. Don't keep holding on to me. I, and again, how do we put this into something that we can uh, have some experience with? I don't know if you've ever been in a case where there's someone you, you thought had died. I mean, this is the best analogy I could work out that you thought had died. In your brain, you said, for God. And you see them again, and they're, they're not. I mean, uh, maybe the closest I came in my lifetime, uh, you probably have heard, a lot of you have heard this before, when Zach was four years old, he got hit by a car. And from the time that Julie called me at work till the time I got to the hospital, this is pre-cell phone era, at least for our family, and for a 20-minute period of time, I didn't know if my firstborn was alive or dead. So, seeing him again alive, I mean, he was still looking kind of messed up uh, at that point, but it's like, that's better than like putting the sheet over you, so. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just saying, that's probably the closest I've come. But imagine what would happen, someone who you thought was dead. I mean, I, this actually happened in my family history. Uh, one of my uncles, was it, he was in the Marines in World War One, and his family was informed that he was killed in action. And they had the funeral draping, the black crepe, and all that. And it turns out he didn't. And he's walking up their walkway a few months later after he gets back. Yeah. And part of you might go, ah, you know, I have a heart attack, but what, how much of you would want to cling and go, you're alive? You're alive, you're really alive. And just trying to put yourself in the mindset of women who are seeing Jesus is, you're really alive. Don't go. You're, you're really there. I mean, just a natural reaction. Here's Jesus. I mean, you can almost imagine here the women pulling in going, okay, don't. Don't keep holding on to me. I've got to go to my Father in heaven. So there is that sense of clinging on as well as touching. We're going to see how the theme of the glory of God permeates scripture. Try to make this linkage between Jesus and the glory of God. Where you find one, you're going to find the other. <clears throat> if the Bible is this Christ-saturated, Christ-centered text and revelation from God, you're going to expect to see God's glory as well. So, where I want to go with this to begin is asking, what does the Bible indicate is the highest priority of God. Bless you. What does God consider his own highest priority? Before we I don't I didn't want to throw that out as a question yet to you saying, okay, what do you think is uh, I don't want to go there because I think we need to explore this. I don't want to set somebody else for like, well you think it's that, but I'm going to show you different anyway. I don't want to do that. I did that by accident once and I'm never going to do that again. Let's take a look at Haggai chapter 1 and read this. Um, Haggai is toward the end of the Old Testament, relatively short book, all of two chapters long. And let me read Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, <coughs> son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be rebuilt, excuse me, to be built. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not worn. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house 
so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I call for a drought on the fields and on the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So I read all that for context, and we're going to go over these passages, uh, give a little bit more background to them. The people of Israel had come home from uh, captivity in Babylon. And again, just to give you a sense of what you're looking at here, it was roughly 70 years before that the final deportation of people out of the area around Jerusalem happens. Jerusalem's destroyed in 586 BC, and virtually everyone who's there is taken into uh, captivity. You find a very small amount of people who aren't. Jeremiah speaks about that in the later chapters of his work. But what happens is that it's roughly a 70-year period of time. The media Persians take over the Babylonian Empire, and they decide to reverse the policy that the Babylonians had, which was take the people from their own homeland, put them somewhere else, and we basically treat them like uh, checkers on a pawn. It's like checkers, or, yeah, checkers on a checkerboard? Yeah, checkers on a checker and moving them around like that. Well, in order to curry favor of the people, Cyrus the Great says, you can go back to your homeland if you want. Turns out, in the case of the people of Israel, relatively few people went back to their homelands. And if you think about it, it's been 70 years, and it would be 70 years back for us. I mean, we'd be looking at the end of 1942. So imagine you've come here from another land. I mean, your, your ancestors did in 1942, and now at the end of 2012, they're saying, We've got the word from the Lord. We can go back to our homelands. Let's pack up and go. How many of you are going to say, yippee, we're, we're going back to the homeland? Probably a few of you aren't going, most of you aren't going to go. You've already established lives here. You, you would think of yourself as an American as opposed to whatever mythical homeland we want to talk about. You're, not, you're probably not going back. But a number of people did go back. It's a small remnant. They thought that as they go back, that now the curse is over, the exile is over, it's going to be paradise again in Israel. And why is it quite turning out that way? Cyrus, who let them go home, also gave orders for a temple to be rebuilt. But Cyrus is already kind of on the old side when he takes over. In a few years, he's dead. And there are people who had forgotten that Cyrus had given the decree that he did, another leader comes in. Some people who are in the area around Jerusalem, they aren't participating, they aren't allowed to participate in the rebuilding of the temple, and out of spite, they cause the work to be stopped. And the work stops for something on the order of about 16 years. So here you have this partially built temple that's sitting there on Mount Zion, and everyone says, eh, not time yet. I mean, you can imagine going by and they're probably thinking, we built a ruin. I mean, if, you ever, if you've ever seen a building that was complete and then gets devastated by a tornado or a hurricane, and we were on the island of Grand Turk a few years ago, and there was a massive hurricane that went through a few years before. 
And either because of time, effort, money, the like, a lot of those buildings, half buildings now, are still standing because no one's had the time to take them down. But imagine you've built something from the ground up that looks like a ruin and it's just stayed that way. That's what the temple's like. Yeah, yes? What well, it reminds me of what you're saying, <coughs> in the 40s, I saw on the west side of Chicago a building that had the framework but never completed because of the depression. Okay. Yeah, extremely, exactly the same. Sat that way for years. And this case, would, in your case, or the Chicago case, would be economics. In this case, it was political. But still, for the same reason, building to stop. So there's a stop recorder that happened. Haggai delivers the message to the people on the first day of the sixth month of the second year of the reign of King Darius. This is one of the few times in Scripture where you can apply an actual known calendar date to an event in Scripture. We can even do that with the birth of Christ. I mean, there are people who will ballpark at some of the birth of Christ between 7 B.C. and 2 B.C. But that's still, what, a five-year range? In this case, we have an exact date. Extremely rare in Scripture. But this is the historical context of what's going on. For the return of exiles, again, expectations fell short and frustrations mounted. If you expect that you're going to return to the Holy Land and things are going to be a paradise, and they aren't, work is hard. Not only is it hard, you're not getting the payoff for the effort you're putting in. And you're wondering, what's going on here? Why is this not working? Their hands, their hands yielded a little result when compared to the effort they put in. God through Haggai commands the people twice to consider your ways. And when God tells you something, listen. When he tells you the same thing twice, it's really important. And within a matter of three verses, he gives the same command. Consider your ways. What are you doing in all of what you're doing? The Lord stated, he is the one who caused the people's efforts to fall short. Now, that might strike somebody as a little odd. Because we might think of evil, for example, or things that don't go well in our culture as perhaps God is just off to the side watching these, letting these things happen, but he's not the cause. Well, in this case, we have a clear statement, he is the cause. When things were falling short for the people, it says, I'm the one who did it. You know, all that stuff you did, all that grain, I blew it away. Not like I let it be blown away. He's taking personal charge of the fact of what's been happening to them. But somebody might say, well, why? Why would, why would God be holding back and frustrating the people like this? The people were focused on their own interests and not that of the Lord. So if you keep telling yourself, it's not time to build the house yet, it's not time to finish, as you're walking past that half-constructed building that built ruin, for lack of a better term, while you're putting up your paneled houses and setting up your business and setting up the McDonald's, no, no, didn't have that yet, uh, or the Starbucks. I mean, but you get the idea. You're setting up your own businesses and you're you're doing your own things. But the, what is supposed to be the visual center of Jerusalem, just as in many uh, European and American cities over time, I know it's definitely not the case now. A church was supposed to be the visual center of a community. So that you could look up, and no matter where you're at in the village or the, the town, you'd look up. There's a cross. There's a church. It, it's a little quick aside. In downtown Detroit, I, uh, I'm on contract at Blue Cross Blue Shield. And there are times I have to park in the employee parking structure, which is nine floors up from the ground. And there was one time I counted like about seven or eight churches that I could see just visually, just in only one part of what I was looking at. It's like, wow, there are a lot of churches down here. Uh, so you have a visual center, a reminder of the presence of God in your community. But what happens if you have nothing but an unfinished building for God in your community while you're building your own house? And again, this was probably for about a 16-year period that they allowed this to happen. Anthony, yes? I say we, it, it might be somewhat of a struggle to see God as being the cause of the frustrations, 
But if we were to go back and read, you know, um, Exodus and Deuteronomy and see what was actually what the covenantal um, contract with the people was, this is downright lenient. <laughs> yeah, right? this is actually very merciful on God's part, and it's building up to a bigger point that we're about to hit the prophetic desert, mm -hmm. you know, period, and where you know it's just swelling up. We need the God Man to come in and save us because we're that far back. That's true. Good point. So yes, this isn't unique. It's not a matter of like God's being harsh with them. God is actually being, in a very real way, lenient with them. We see God's priority. You see in those command: build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and I may be glorified. So here's God's priority isn't giving food to the people. God's priority isn't giving them physical comfort. God's priority is that he may be glorified in what's happening. That's what he wants. And especially for people in our Western culture who have a, often a very materialistic mindset, the whole idea that God's priority is a glory over, let's say, the growth of our economy or our physical comfort is just an alien concept to us. Uh, Dave? It's kind of interesting to think, too, that uh, sort of from a naturalistic perspective or a human perspective, we might be tempted to think that if we don't glorify him based on that statement there, he wouldn't have any, which is certainly not true. It's simply an expression of bringing that glory to wider vision. That's true. That, I mean, that's a great point because it's not a matter of God sitting there going, oh, I'm not going to have any glory if you don't glorify me. Um, it's all, his glory is already there. He wants his glory to be known. He's kind of auto-glorious. <laughs> yeah. Yes, very good. Auto <coughs> I'm going to use that. I'll give you credit for it. So the Bible clearly shows that the glory of God is God's highest priority. So when it comes to uh, the things he does for us, they're manifestations of his glory. They're the effects of his glory. And I'll repeat something I uh, read from Tullian Tavigian in his book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. Yeah, you matter, but you're not the point. Amen. God is. Okay, so... Does the priority which God gives to his own glory pose a problem to us? Is God an egomaniac on a cosmic level? I've heard this question posed. Maybe, maybe you haven't had the guts to say it. I mean, I've heard people who actually did. It's like, well, you know, God bless you for your temerity, but you're right. Think about human glory versus divine glory. If a mere human were to make his own personal glory his life's priority, we correctly see that person is completely egotistical. Maybe you've known people like this. Uh, back when Zach and Thomas were much, much younger, there was this cartoon they used to like to watch and sit down and watch it with them called Johnny Bravo. Yeah, I've seen the heads going, yeah, I remember that Johnny. Anyway, Johnny Bravo was this Elvis Presley-like character who had this really huge tuft of white blonde hair going back. And everything in Johnny Bravo's life centered on Johnny Bravo. <laughs> so he'd be, 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 be talking with someone and he goes, enough about you, let's talk about me. <laughs> you can see, somebody who's that completely egotistical, we'd understand this isn't right. However, this isn't the case with God. Anything we do for our own glory will be imperfect, incomplete, and riddled with sin. So, I mean, asking yourself the motive of what you do in life. Is there anything that doesn't perhaps have at least some sense of imperfection, incompletion, or a motive of sin to some degree of what you're doing? Maybe you want to be well known. But why? So God may be glorified? Perhaps it's so that you may be glorified. Uh, also think about people who are athletes. For example, with the Olympics, I don't know how many of you were following the, the various events going on, <coughs> but you have Michael Phelps and these Christy Franklin and others who were swimmer, swim, swimming competitions and the like. Uh, then you have Hussein Bolt, you know, interesting fellow. He's the world's greatest athlete, and you know that because he told us so. <laughs> uh, but 
for as much as you have a Hussein Bolt or somebody else who can, let's say, run a race and win, keep in mind that there will be one day that Hussein Bolt isn't going to be able to run. Either because his body's not capable of performing at Olympic level, or he'll die, so he can't hold on to that medal forever. And there's also another problem. He's not been the Olympic champion throughout eternity. There's this gap of time when he wasn't quite the champion yet. Kind of missed out on that one. So, even when it comes to human glory, we can see where it's incomplete. It's imperfect. And asking ourselves in terms of our motivation, why are we doing what we're doing? To put it bluntly, we're simply not that good. A lot of us think we are. Let's be honest. We're not. But God is. And I want you to think about this, because oftentimes in our culture, we tend to think away from extremes, which is one reason why a lot of people will avoid the topics of heaven and hell. I mean, heaven's okay. Everyone's going there. They died. I mean, it's, it's, it's death by... It's universal salvation by death, I've heard R.C. Sproul call it. Mm -hmm. And hell, it's like nobody's going to hell except unless you're Stalin, Pol Pot, Hitler, whoever else. Of course, you've got mm -hmm. this person who's killed billions of people, and well, millions of people in order to do this. Um, but we tend to avoid extremes. We try to always find things in the middle. But the thing about God is, God is a being of extremes. He's perfectly holy, not kind of holy in between. He is love, not kind of love here. He holds these things perfectly. His hatred of sin is absolute. It's not, well, kind of, I'll give you a pass, you know, wink, wink, pass on this one. No. That's why when Jesus says, be perfect like my Father in heaven is perfect, Jesus can't, cur can't grade on a curve. The standard is perfection. And unless we're in Christ, we've missed the perfection mark. So, we find that with God's glory, no glory which exists has ever been, is, or will ever be higher than his. God, he has no competition. He has no real competition. We try, we fail, if, in terms of our idolatry. For God, such glory is not incomplete. And I use those double negatives purposely. We're all done time, we'll, we'll be out in a moment or two. It's not diminished or increased with time. So it's not like God has X amount of glory now, but just wait a few more years. It's going to be glory plus. No, the glory he has now, he's always had and always will. Nothing will diminish it. Nothing will add to it. It's the highest and the best. I want to leave you with this thought. If God promoted a lesser glory to appear to be more humble to us, he would be guilty of promoting something inferior at the expense of what's truly best, namely his own highest and perfect glory. So, when he's promoting his own glory, he's promoting that which is truly best. If he promotes something else, he's promoting something inferior. Saying, well, it'd be like, I mean, if you've ever had a product where, uh, I'm trying to give you a really good example, some people who are builders, let's say you've got a construction firm, you've got two construction firms. One's, eh, they just barely need code. The other one's excellent. And they have a reputation for years of being excellent builders. With the people who are the excellent builders, who know they are, in terms of their area, they are the best at this time and place, is it right for them to say, well, you know, it's going to seem a little egotistical if we tell you we're the best. Go over to inferior construction company. We'll, we'll appear to be more humble that way. Nobody is going to sell construction like that. If you're the best, you're going to tell people you are. And it's not ego if it's true. And in the case of God, it's ultimately true. So when you see God's priority is his own glory, don't think of him as being egomaniacal. Think of him as being completely honest but it's also something he wants to share with us. Not in the sense of giving it to us, but letting us know how wonderful it is and sharing the wonder of that with his creation. So I'll leave you with that, other than Rose's question. Yes? With me, 
with God showing his glory, there's such security in that. That you know God is not going to change. He's not going to. And when he does something for you, it increases your faith even more. Because he shows you his glory and it just kind of edges you along. You know, like yesterday I lost my credit card. Oh. And I thought, oh Lord, you know, what am I going to do? And I didn't know where. And I, I, I kept praying and he said, go back to the gas station where you were yesterday. Went there, they had the card. And I couldn't praise him enough because he showed me his glory. Right. Through getting that credit card. Something small, you know, no, right. no big issue. But his glory is so consistent that there's a security in that. It's something to behold and aim at the thing for. So, yeah, yeah, good point. That is all for this session. The PowerPoints which I used for this class will be posted on both the Restoring the Core website as well as the School of the Solitary Place blog. Thank you for listening to this program. We can be contacted at mail at restoringthecore.com. We're on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash restoringthecore. You can also follow us on Twitter at RestoreTheCore. Our original blog is still active. It can be found at schoolofthesolitaryplace.blogspot.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you join us next time for The Lens of Glory.